Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, Seattle's stage and screen experience, coming to you in podcast form from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios of the Shirts of Beautiful Puget Sound. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. Back in 2020, we took to the internet airwaves to interview talented local actors and directors. And now, over 75 episodes later, Heilman and Haver is, thanks to you, our loyal listeners, Seattle's number one stage and screen podcast, bringing you in-depth interviews with the finest talent from L.A. to Broadway to the U.K., including Emmy Award winners, best-selling authors, unsung heroes, and industry leaders. And all while keeping our finger on the pulse of the Seattle and Pacific Northwest theater scene with in-depth reviews, cast and crew conversations, awards, and behind-the-scenes tours. You can find it all at highlandandhaver.com. And while you're there, sign up for our free email newsletter so you don't miss a single update or episode. Speaking of episodes, welcome to episode 76. Joining us today is Kristen Lopez, author of the new book, But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Films. In it, Kristen offers an endlessly fascinating look at 52 beloved screen adaptations and the great reads that inspired them. Some films, like Clueless, Amy Heckerling's interpretation of Jane Austen's Emma, diverge wildly from the original source material, while others, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, shift the point of view to craft a different experience within the same story. Kristen explores just what makes these works classics of both the page and screen, and why each made for an exceptional adaptation, whether faithful to the book or exemplifying cinematic creative license. Kristen is a pop culture essayist, TV editor for IndieWire, and she's worked as an entertainment journalist for over 15 years, with her articles appearing at Variety, MTV, TCM, and on Roger Ebert. A California native, Kristen was raised in a small suburb near Sacramento and graduated with a master's in English from California State University, Sacramento. She's also the creator of the classic film podcast, Ticklish Business. In her free time, Kristen enjoys reading and finding old Hollywood connections in her neighborhood. She joins us from that neighborhood in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. There's nothing that Greg and I love more than talking to authors here on this show because we find that oftentimes authors are the ones with the real scoop on what's going on in Hollywood. Sometimes they even know more than their subjects because in retrospect, they do know more, right? Do you find that as an author? <laughs> do you run into those kind of situations? Uh, you know, it's... Considering this is my first book, I haven't had it specifically with this one, but I mean, I am a journalist in my just general career. So, you know, that happens, happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. Well, you're both, you're a lot of things, uh, but you're both a writer and a cinephile. So which came first, love of books and writing or your love of movies? Did it all just kind of happen at once? I, I definitely love movies, you know, first and foremost, my my house was always filled with movies. My mom uh, probably let me watch way too many movies that I should not have watched as a young child. Uh, we were always going to the drive-in when that was a thing. So the movies were always a, a huge part of my life. Uh, and then eventually, you know, I, I started to delve into writing once I got into uh, middle school and high school. You know, I was always a person that was writing li stupid little short stories crafting my own newspaper, uh, you know, so I, writing came very early to me as well, but it wasn't until I got into high school that it really became a thing. Uh, but it was never something that I thought I'd like make money off of or use as a living. I just figured I'd do it until I could get a quote unquote real job. And so far the real job has not developed. So I've just kind of just kept at it and it's become it's become my career, uh, and now, you know, the two dovetail, and I get to actually write about movies, so kind of come full circle. <laughs> well, you mentioned this is your first book. 
How did you approach the research to this? Is it different than your standard journalistic, you know, reporting or research? And then um, the big question is, did you read the book first or did you watch the film first or vice versa? <laughs> That's the big one. The thing that I tell people, the best way I can describe the process of actually putting this together was it reminded me a lot of taking my master's exam. So in order to get my master's, we have to take a test that required us reading, I think, like 100 books in a semester. And, you know, the rule was you were supposed to read everything, but not everybody did. Uh, but so essentially, it required you to read. I think I, I think for my master's exam, I read like 50 and, you know, taking notes and being able to to kind of make connections. But I had a whole semester in order to, you know, and I didn't have a job. So it was it was a lot easier than it was now. So the process for this was very similar in the sense that I had to really rigorously schedule. So every Sunday I would watch the movie and then I would break up the week from Sunday to to Friday with however many chapters. So I would have to read the chapters in the that span of time. And then Saturday I would write the chapter and then Sunday it would start all over again with the next movie. So I tended to prioritize stuff in terms of how much research I needed to give. So highest priority were movies that I had never seen and books I had never read. And then from there it was, you know, kind of like, oh, this movie I've seen, but the book I haven't read. Book I've read, but the movie I haven't seen. And then finally it was movies I've read and books I've read. Those tended to be something where I could maybe skim a bit more. Um, you know, if there was a silver lining to a pandemic it was that I had no social life at the time, so I could kind of just hang out and do my day job during the day and maybe have the movie on in the background and then get to read, uh, you know, my lunch break or after work. So it really did remind me that like, oh, if I, you know, really commit, I can relive my college days uh, as much as I probably don't want to. But in terms of the writing process, you know, it was hard because I only had so many pages to fill you know most of the chapters are very short we had a very tight word count so I had to be able to tell a story in a very finite amount of words so oftentimes it would be like what is the most fascinating things from the book um, you know the notes that I had written for each book and movie are far longer than the actual chapters ended up being um, <laughs> and then from there it was you know once I kind of knew the things I wanted to hit you know, outside research, anything else interesting. So that required me to, you know, watch bonus features or read what other writers had written about the movies or the books in the interim years. So it was kind of like tracking a news story, um, albeit with far less space uh, and, you know, trying not to be snarky as much as I wanted to be in some instances. You know, and always remembering that the goal is for people to read the book, you know, so make sure that I was talking about the book as much as I was talking about the film. Now, did you come in with any sort of any preconceived notion or did you come in open minded to uh, whether or not books and and their movies are, you know, of the same you know level of quality or, or anything like that? You know, I was always a fan of adaptations and the, I'm very impatient. The reason I took this project on, one of many reasons, was that I am somebody that will immediately go out and buy the book. If it's got somebody that I love in it, I'll go buy the book. I'm like, I need to know whether how invested I should be in this movie because I can't wait a year or two years to find out what happens. I need to be spoiled now. Uh, so <laughs> I, I've always done that for as long as I can remember. And my assumption had, had always been that all movies are 
different than the book that they're based on. You know, there's always crucial changes. No book is verbatim like the 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 movie and vice versa. And what I really came away with after reading all 52 books and, and seeing all 52 movies is just the art of adaptation. It really is an art because I think there is this misguided belief that a screenwriter has an easy job doing adaptation. You have the book. Just do whatever the book does and it's totally fine. Or don't do what the book does and just, you know, get to use the characters. Like there is some sort of level of ease associated with it. And that's really not true because you have to please two different audiences. You have to tell the same story, but in a different way for a different medium. And that's really challenging. And even if you're translating a story verbatim, something like, you know, the Coen brothers uh, with No Country for Old Men, you're still trying to appease a different audience in a different format than the book. And that is a real challenge. So how did you select the 52? Was that handed to you by your editors? Did you have uh, a significant amount of input, get your favorite ones in there, that sort of thing? It was really a back and forth thing with TCM. They had requirements for me. I think the one the one book and movie that they wanted was Dune because that was what was coming out at the time that I was writing it. So that was already kind of, they're like, you have to do it. I'm like, but I don't want to. And they're like, we don't care. You need to include it. Um <laughs> So the original shortlist that I gave them was stopped at Jurassic Park because I had assumed that we wanted classic. And they're like, Kristen, adaptation didn't end in 95. You need to do more uh, contemporary stuff. So so we went back and forth at that point. We both agreed that we wanted a diversity of authors. We wanted a diversity of genres, eras, make sure there's women directors, women authors, people of color. Um, so we knew we knew we wanted all of those things. and And then it just became kind of, going back and forth, this book is out of print, so we can't include this. This movie is hard to find. Uh, you know, There had to be a certain level of name recognition. I always joke with people that if I had had my way, there would be adaptations on here that nobody cares about, except me. You know, movies <laughs> that nobody saw, books that nobody read. Um, it would just be stuff that Kristen likes, and then nobody would buy it. Um, <laughs> so so there had to be a certain level of name name recognition to most of the things. I knew that I did not want to include books that I hated because the job is, you know, the title is, but have you read the book? I want people to read the book. So I tended to not include books that I did not like. So that, that was a challenge. And then we had to make sure they were actual books. So there were a couple books that I wanted to include that were actually short story collections or they were novellas. They had to be full length. So there was a lot of back and forth, you know, and TCM would catch things you know that I had included they're like this is a novella you can't include it I would catch things where it's like this book is out of print you can't use it uh and then eventually the number just kind of kept slowly changing I wish I could say I was smart enough to have thought of a book a week for a year and that's where 52 came from no uh it literally at a certain point I just said 52 I think I could do that uh so it, there was no thought involved at the end of that it's just like, I, I can work with this. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. That'd be a great way to kind of digest the book. It's it's very easy to sit down and read a short selection the way that you have it formatted, which I really enjoy because I like those little kind of tidbits. Um, mm. And then if you're a quick reader, maybe you can get through the book in a week, but you can certainly yeah. get to the movie and then uh, get your book list going. Uh, I always think of uh, one of my favorite, I guess, short stories, novellas is, uh, you know, Rita, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which ended up being... Maybe not immediately, but a blockbuster, uh, you know, complete cult following for that film. It's on stage here, actually, uh, in Tacoma uh, running this month. 
And uh, so it's been adapted many different times, but it was part of a collection. So different seasons. Uh, so it didn't make the book. Yeah. I, the one book I really wanted to include was We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is what they used for Total Recall, because I love Total Recall. And they, mm. you know, it's not, it's it's a novella. We couldn't include it. And so I was like, I begrudgingly said, okay, we'll do do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which is what they based Blade Runner off of. And I had never seen Blade Runner, never read the book. Uh, it was not my first choice, but I ended up watching it, of course, and and reading the book, and it was it was a great experience. Um, so I was I was happy to include it. I did kind of cheat a little on the novella side. You know, I have Coraline in there. Coraline's a very brief book, but they consider it a book. I don't really know why. Um, and Nella Larson's passing is also novella length, and I included it just because. You know, if I was like, if I'm including Dune, then I'm including the other popular adaptation of that year, which was passing. So uh, I felt like that was my kind of like sticking it to the man type of moment. <laughs> Got it in there. Was Dune the extent of the drudgery of, of of the work as far as what you didn't want to do? And then follow up on the other side, was there something that really surprised you that jumped out and thought, man, this is really good? For me, reading Dune, I you know, it was definitely not the one that I wanted to read. It was not nearly as bad uh, as I had anticipated. I only had to read like half the book because the the film, the new version, is only half of the book. So uh, if there's ever a volume two, I'm going to have to go back and actually read the rest of the book and then watch the other half of the movie. Um, so I'm not looking forward to that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for me, I think, you know, the, there were other books that I kind of read it i did not want to reread clockwork orange i'd read it mm. um in college and i didn't like it i did not like the movie you know it was the one that i was like can i is there any way i can maybe avoid having to like enmesh myself in this world again you know and it definitely was a hard sit again which i anticipated so that was the one i probably dreaded more than dune you know but the, i think what i was really surprised by was reading Ian Fleming's Dr. No for the first time. Yeah. I'd never seen a, a Sean Connery James Bond uh, before this. I'd seen like Brosnan through to today, but I had not seen a, a Connery one. And I expected it to be like horrifically sexist and offensive. And, you know, the book is very dated. It is very, I think, offensive in, in some of its depictions of women and disabled people. But at the same time, you know, watching how the movie translates those things. It's actually a great example, I think, of a movie that is better than its source material, just because it understands what an audience is going to tolerate. What do you think makes for a successful adaptation, then? It's obviously not necessarily easier than starting from scratch and writing a screenplay, even though the source material is right there. But obviously, you've read through all these things. You've seen all these examples. What do you think makes a successful adaptation? You know, I've been fortunate to talk to screenwriters who have done adaptations and it's a question I ask them you know because I'm like you guys are the ones actually doing the job and for them they've said that you know it's about capturing the spirit of the book and I think that that's really important it's about capturing what a reader loves about the source material because you know you're I, I, as I mentioned earlier you're trying to appease two disparate groups of people right so you're trying to appease the people that have read the book and love the book and you're also trying to get this audience of people that maybe have never heard of this story, never just want to see a good movie, just want to be entertained. And those are two very disparate audiences. But if you can capture part of what makes you love this piece of writing, 
I think your job is kind of started for you. You know, uh, there's a quote that I use in the book from W.S. Van Dyke, who was the director of the Thin Man series. And when he gave the, the book to the screenwriters of that film, he said, you know, use the book as a foundation and not a guide. And I think mm. that's, again, another great piece of advice to take the book as a springboard and be able to build upon that without losing that spirit. And I think that good adaptations, you know, can at least conjure up some feeling where you're like, oh, I want to read this book now. Maybe maybe the book is not something I've known about, but I want to know more about it because I love this world. I love these characters uh, and vice versa. So I think that that's the best way to approach an adaptation um, where you, you have the spirit of it. Well, two series that I think, in my opinion, hit the mark uh, are both the Harry Potter series and Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I think because of what you're saying, it, it's the essence. I mean, not every detail is there. Some are changed, um, et cetera, for the sake of storytelling. But but it's the essence of the stories that seem to to translate from the book to the movies. In your opinion, what, what film stuck closely to the source material and, and found success in that way? I think that the great example is the Coen brothers, you know, No Country for Old Men. That book is verbatim the movie. You know, the Coen brothers pick the same scenes. They use pretty much, it's almost like you're reading a script when you're mm -hmm. reading the book. What I love about it, though, is that Cormac McCarthy's book is very dark, very angry, very politicized. And the Coen brothers take all of those same scenes and add just a great dose of like dark comedy to it. They add nuance. They add something different that even though you're reading the same lines as what is in the book, there's just something different where you're like, oh, okay, I still get that darkness. I still get that grit. But maybe it's a bit humorous, you know, it's cheeky in some way, um, which I, I really, really appreciated. Um, you know, I, I think another great example is is something like Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is very different book to movie, but the spirit is there. They're both really thrilling. They're both, you know, cinematic in scope, even though they have different plot lines and different characterizations. But you can read the book and see the movie. And, and most people have seen the movie first. It's very hard to find somebody that's read the book before. But you can have either one approach it from either angle and lose nothing by knowing the other exists. You get just as much fun engaging with either source of the text. Yeah, I totally agree on both of those. Uh, I love uh, Cormac McCarthy and Jurassic Park is hands down one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, I actually just read another one and then watched the film recently. Um, the Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Also pretty close to the source material, which I was very pleased to find because I enjoyed the book immensely and thought it was really well written. And uh, I love seeing that when the book is so well written, they don't have to do a whole lot to make it cinematic and make yeah. it enjoyable to a completely different audience. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the other side. <laughs> what film diverged the most from its source material and still remains successful? Oh, gosh, which film diverges? Uh. You know, I think the best example is Jaws uh, to, okay. to throw Spielberg in there again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I've gotten as much vitriol from people. When people critique the book, they always bring up Jaws. I have had people say to me, why did you include Jaws? The book is trash. Why would you ask people to read the book? The book is garbage. And I was like, I didn't realize that because when I was doing the the 
shortlist. I was like, Jaws has to be on there. It's the film that cemented the summer season. But most people yeah. don't know it's based on a book. They assume that right. Steven Spielberg just conjured it from his head. And so I was really fascinated by that before I even started writing. And then I read the book and I was like, this is weird. Uh, you know, I'm like, because it's impossible. You know, you get maybe a certain generation of people that remember the book before the movie, but it's becoming smaller and smaller. Um, so most people are coming at it from having seen the film. And I think that the reason people hate it so much is that it can never be the movie. You know, you expect right. something that is on par. And you don't want to see a movie where, you know, Hooper looks like Brad Pitt, you know, or is described as being such and has a really explicit affair with Ellen Brody. You know, I, I was I remember reading that being like, oh, God, because I'm just seeing Richard Dreyfus in my head, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, or or the, this big mob plot line. And, and really, it's about capitalism because it's about the economy of Amity. But yet the book was a bestseller when it came out. The book yeah. was huge. So clearly it was very popular. Um, and I think that that's what's really fascinating. You know, is the book good? I thought it was perfectly fine. You know, I did not hate it. I don't think it's a terrible book. But it does show you how a film can just start smother its source material and become bigger than that. You know, I think a great another great example, I didn't include it in the book because I was not going to read it. It's way too long. It's like Gone with the Wind. You know, I know that Margaret Mitchell's book goes far more in depth than the film does but yet you would be hard pressed to find somebody that's actually read margaret mitchell's very voluminous text so those those are the ones that i i definitely point to you know as as examples one that i didn't include because again i wanted to pick books that i liked is uh <laughs> is american psycho um oh, i i love american psycho the film and the book i know brett easton ellis who wrote the book hates the movie and i feel like he hates it because it's not is good it like the book isn't as good as the movie i feel like he might be jealous uh <laughs> um you know it, but i think that the the movie is just such a, a great encapsulation on on the themes and it's more enjoyable than reading the book so so yeah those are those are the ones that i you know look at when i talk about like divergence and coming at the source material that way quick follow-up on that is uh you mentioned uh Brett Easton ellis now there's obviously it it it's pretty well known that Stephen King did not care for Kubrick's uh, Shining. Yeah. Uh, are there any other examples that come to mind of, I mean, I suppose when the author signs over the rights, it's kind of, hey, man, it's out of my hands. There's, there's only so much you can do except gripe after the fact, but um, pretty vocal about not caring for, for, you know, what's now considered really a masterpiece of horror. Any, any other authors really turn their nose up at what happened to their movies? Oh, yeah. A lot of them yeah. do. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, probably most uh, of them, huh? <laughs> Dashiell Hammett, when he did um, The Thin Man, he, he wrote the first Thin Man. He tried very hard for years to write a sequel, never did. Most people are very surprised to find out that The Thin Man is a one-off book. And, and he tried very hard to do a sequel. He could not do it. And he did not like what they did with the film uh, and then pretty much just jump-shipped after two. Mm. Um, you know, Roald Dahl hated... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory hated it. I uh, thought Gene Wilder was too silly, didn't like it at all. And it took him years, it, you know, it took people saying to him, you know, this is how a generation of children have gotten into your work for yeah. him to finally like begrudgingly say like, okay, you know, Jack Finney, who did Invasion of the Body Snatchers, really didn't like that, you know, the that so many people were ascribing like themes to the book. 
you know uh he he people were saying it's a story about capitalism it's a story about communism it's a story about consumerism and he was just like i don't really think it's about anything um you know so he didn't really care for for the uh the way that people were infusing meaning one of my favorite stories is um to have and have not that they adapted in 1942 it's just read that too yeah yeah, based on an Ernest Hemingway novel. Um, and Hemingway hated the film that they made. Um, mostly because Howard Hawks, who was the director, bet him uh, while they were out in Florida that he could make a great adaptation out of one of Hemingway's worst books. And Hemingway said, sure, let's do it. Um, but the problem was is that he found out later on that Hawks made so much money just shopping the rights. And he got like a flat fee. So he was just more irked that he didn't get paid for it. And he also hated that they, you know, vastly changed it, turned it into kind of like a Casablanca ripoff. Um, I yeah. think he was, he had to be more irked that the book is trash. You know, it's one of the, it's the only book that I had to include at the end that I did not like. But yeah, a lot of authors, you know, take, take umbrage with uh, adaptations. Yeah, that was a loose one. And uh, it was a little bit of a chore to get through. Movie- yeah. Not so much. That was a l- yeah. little little easier <laughs> than the read. Yeah. <laughs> I think my favorite quote is uh, Rick Riordan, who did uh, Percy Jackson series. When the movie came out, he said it was like watching his life's work be put through a meat shredder. Yeah. Authors, I think, I think it, authors get very, very, you know, they, they're not often precious about certain things. You know, I, I always... I always sympathize with authors when key pieces of their their works get tweaked. You know, people ask me what's an adaptation I wish I could include in a future volume. And I always point to Don Winslow's Savages that they adapted in 2012. It's a fantastic, brutal, brutal book. And I love it so much. I've read it multiple times. And they adapted it into a, a very decent movie. But the ending of the book, the book is very bleak. It's like very Tarantino-esque, like Reservoir Dogs ending. And the movie has that ending and then says psych and then does a happy ending. And I remember tweeting at Don Winslow once just in jest to be like, you know, the movie's perfect. It's 97% there except for that happy ending at the end. And he said, that was not my decision. That was Oliver Stones who directed it. They had to put in a happy ending. And uh, so I I commiserated with him uh, and understood. And I think that's when I tend to get like irked about an adaptation is like changing a key piece of, you know, the detail of what makes the book work uh, in order to appease, you know, like a studio or or maybe an audience, you know, survey or something is is where I tend to be like, leave the book alone. (laughs) I wanted to go back to what you said about Jaws earlier, because you mentioned that not a lot of people know it was a a book before it was a movie. Other than Jaws, is there any other movie where your fans or people you talk to are surprised that it came out as a book first? Yeah, the big one, one of the other ones that I get a lot of people are surprised by is Anita Loose's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which actually is... The movie, the Howard Hawks movie from the 50s with Marilyn Monroe is actually adapted from a a stage play, stage musical that was adapted from the book. So really, the movie and the book have very little to do with each other, um, even though one inspired the other, which inspired the other. So um, and we'll see that with like the color purple um, later this year, which is uh, they're they're doing an adaptation of the musical even though they've already adapted the original Alice Walker novel, um, which I think is really interesting. 
Uh, but the Anita Luz book is very much, you know, a flapper era novel. It was published in 25. And it's very different than the the film. And I love the film so much. It's one of my favorites. But the book, reading the book for the first time, I was really flummoxed by, like, the female friendship angle is still there. But there's there's a lot of, like, there's a heist. There's a diamond heist in it. There's a lot of, like, snarky stuff that the, the production code at the time would not have let them get away with. You know, the the little boy character that most people love about the movie is actually a grown man in the book. You know, and the ending is very different uh, in the film where, you know, Lorelai Lee, the Marilyn Monroe character, is ultimately far more conniving than she is on screen. But that's okay. She's allowed to get away with that, which actually has more in common with uh, Anita Luz's other book, uh, other movie movie of the the 1930s uh redheaded woman so most people are really surprised because they love the Marilyn Monroe musical you know diamonds are a girl's best friend is iconic and when they find out it's based on a book and it's got way more wacky hijinks they're like oh that's that's different (laughs) now Howard Hawks's uh name has come up several times already in this conversation honestly one of my favorite directors are there any other directors that have focused a lot on adaptations or use that as their material regularly, maybe opposed to to others? Yeah, I mean, the other name that comes up frequently, you know, I tried really hard not to reutilize directors and it didn't always work in my favor. Spielberg. Spielberg mm-hmm. loves adaptations. He's made several of them, three of which are in the books so of Jaws, Jurassic Park and The Color Purple. And I think that Spielberg really gets great screenwriters that understand the, the art of adaptation, you know, because all three of those movies, while very different genres and storytelling styles, have a magic all their own, which is fantastic. Um, Kubrick is another one, you know, between The Shining and, and Clockwork Orange, you know, while, uh, you know, Stephen King did not like The Shining, most people love the adaptation because of just how sophisticated the fear is you know uh in a way that is i I say similar to what king does in the book even if it's not the same themes and the storytelling is different then you look at something like clockwork orange which is very similar to the anthony burgess novel but it's just relentless i think that's what makes kubrick work so well with adaptation is that he is just relentless and kind of getting the themes in you know, which which I love. Uh, Sofia Coppola is another one, too. You know, I put Virgin Suicides in the book. She's also adapted uh, Antonia Frazier's Marie Antoinette book. Um, and I think that, you know, she's also a, another director that just gets what makes a book work and can flesh that out in a way that's just really, really effective. Yeah, Stephen King didn't like Jack Nicholson being uh, cast in that role. And it's just absolutely unfathomable to think of that movie without Jack, right? <laughs> he, yeah. he, he thought Jack was started off too crazy looking, which yeah, probably I mean, something to it. I get it. He did eventually get his version. You know, they did the miniseries um, with, with what is it, Stephen Weber, yeah. I think, in the lead, uh, which I don't know if that worked either. So, you know. Hard uh, act to follow, you know. Yeah, it's definitely a hard act to follow. You know, I, I had never read The Shining before embarking on this project. And I knew they were very different, but I didn't realize how they were different. And I I was really shocked by how that book is horror in a totally different way. You know, the, the Overlook is a great location, but that's such a painful story of abuse and alcoholism that I know Mike Flanagan tried very hard to kind of 
work with when he did Dr. Sleep, which is mm-hmm. both an adaptation of the King novel, but also tries to be kind of this um, attempt, you know, Mike, Mike Flanagan has talked about trying to rectify and bridge the gap between the two Shinings. And I think that Dr. Sleep is is probably one of my favorite contemporary movies. Uh, so I, I think he did, he did the job. A worthy effort, yeah. Do you ever find that there's a bias when looking at comparing the two, a, a movie and, and the book of which one you saw or read first, that maybe there's a, you know, I read the book first, so I'm going to use that as the kind of the litmus test for the movie and, and vice versa? It happens all the time. You know, I really do think that how which version you you look at first does affect how you see a subsequent iteration. Um, you know, people always ask me, like, why do people you know, prefer the book or the movie. And I say that people that read the book first feel like they're getting the complete version. You know, they're getting everything and a film can only take away or add, you know, so they feel like they're getting the purest take on that. And I think that if you do read the book first, you have that ability to kind of like armchair cast, you can kind of see things. Whereas with a, if you see the film first, Case in point being Jaws, you know, it's hard to get a perfect casting or perfect line delivery or a perfect scene out of your head. You know, an example I use is The Talented Mr. Ripley. I love the Anthony Mangella film and I saw the film first as a teenager and I loved it. And when I went back and read Patricia Highsmith's book, it was really hard for me, A, not to get, not to have Matt Damon and Jude Law and, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow in my head. But just to realize how cold and clinical Highsmith's text is, you know, the big thing that Minghella's film gets praised, praised for and condemned by Highsmith fans for is that he added in the homoerotic subtext, which is is really just text in the film that was not in the book. Highsmith does not make a, a judgment call if these characters are same sex oriented, you know, that it could be a story about class if you want it to be. It can be a story about race. It can be a story about consumerism. Yes, it can be, uh, you know, read as in a, a queer reading, but that's not the way she's approaching it. So for me, knowing that Highsmith was, you know, a, a gay writer, you know, knowing that the movie did that, I assumed that the book would be like far more, you know, over with that. When I went back and read it, I'm like, oh, that's actually built upon for the film. It, it kind of forced me to reevaluate how I approach, you know, the book, and especially when it's dealing with minority subjects at that time, being like, oh, that changes how you expect a book to be. Well, we can't talk about adaptations without talking about one that is just universally either loathed or loved, uh, and that's Game of Thrones. And I'm going to I'm going to heap praise on it because I think casting is probably the thing that success hinges on more than anything else when you talk about projects like this, like we're discussing today, uh, or really in general, uh, casting is king. I think that they cast that perfectly. I saw the first season, and it took me years to see the rest because I read every book as I went. And it almost helped me as I read that first book because it is so, it's a very, very deep world. It takes a while. It's heavy reading. It takes a long time to get through these books. So it almost gave me a little help as I went because I wasn't having to, you know, use my imagination. I had kind of an idea what Jamie Lannister looked like. And I'd like to know what's your opinion of of the project that's been cast the most purely as far as portraying the characters from the book? Oh, gosh, that is that is tough. Uh... I also thought No Country for Old Men did a really good job. 
No Country for Old Men does a really good job. Yeah. It's it's one of those few just perfect adaptations, I, I think. You know, yeah. Javier Bardem and and Josh Brolin just give that role, their respective roles, they're all, it's fantastic. Another one I throw out is is the Joy Luck Club. Uh, I think that perfectly encapsulates the characters and, and the Virgin Suicides. You know, watching the Virgin Suicides, it is impossible not to see you know, Kirsten Dunst in that role. Uh, it, it's a perfectly cast film that goes so well with kind of the apathy and the ethereal beauty of the text. Uh, so th- those ones definitely get my my love. What books are out there that might be on your list of favorites that you'd like to see be adapted that haven't yet? Oh, gosh, I have so many. Um, you know, <laughs> the ones that my list originally had far too many Dennis Lehane adaptations. And they said, Kristen... You can't do Dennis Lehane's entire filmography. You have to take them out, <laughs> which which broke my heart um, because I, I had pitched the book and uh, Mystic River was one of my sample chapters. Uh, so I was mm. very bummed that I didn't get to include any, but I would love for them to adapt. They uh, I know Ben Affleck a couple years ago did Gone Baby Gone, which is a very worthy adaptation of Dennis Lehane's Kenzie Gennaro series. But the second book in that series, Darkness Take My Hand, Every I've read it more than once, and every time I read it, I can see I can see the world. I can there's a, a it is a dark, sad, like bitter, gloomy world with like a huge gun battle at the end that I can just like see. I can see the soundtrack. I can see all of it, and I need them to do it. I know Apple was talking about doing a series, and that has now gone by the wayside. Um, so I'm trying to manifest again the uh, the adaptation of of that one. Um, and a lot of Matt Ruff's books, uh, he did, he's the author who um, wrote the book that became Lovecraft Country. For better or worse, whether you like Lovecraft Country or not, the book is so distinct. You read it and you never forget it. But he has written just several books that are like that, where you read them and the plots are so inventive and they're so vibrant. And you're just like, how is this man not the new Dennis Lehane where we're just <laughs> adapting all of his stuff? So those those are the two authors that I I bring up. You know, we need to we need to be seeing more from them. I am ready for this. Well, we've talked about uh, fiction up to this point. You know, a lot of wonderful films made from nonfiction. I think of Killers of the Flower Moon uh, yeah. just received a, a a wonderful response at Cannes uh, and from the uh, the Osage Native American community. Scorsese apparently has another epic on his hands. Another movie that supposedly he has optioned, I understand DiCaprio is also attached to potentially Keanu Reeves, is The Devil in the White City yeah, uh, by Eric Larson, which is probably my favorite nonfiction book of all times. And uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing if that actually comes to fruition. Anything on the horizon for you that you're really looking forward to seeing? Adaptations that uh, that maybe you've heard of we haven't? Anything inside oh, L.A.? <laughs> Nothing that I have heard of yet. I am very behind uh, on my reading. I know that, you know, they're doing Nosferatu again. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Robert Eggers is adapting it. and With Willem Dafoe know, attached now, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I as somebody who has read and studied Dracula, again, college education, you don't get away from reading Bram Stoker. Uh, I'm ready for that one to see, like, can we build on that at this point? Yeah. Or are we just... Are we just done with it? Um, you know, I still have to read Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, you know, I know they were talking about adapting Grady Hendrix's book Final Girl, uh, Final Girl Support Club a couple years ago for HBO. I don't know if that's still happening, but I hope it is because the book is very much in the Yellow Jackets vein if you're into that. Uh, it's a very fascinating 
fun book. So no, I I mean, I people keep asking me about like, oh, what books are you going to include for volume two? I'm like, it is so hard to keep up now, like, because everything is content, uh, you know, so <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, I used to, I used to feel like I was kind of in the know. It was easy to like Google, like movies based on books and you maybe had enough to fill a year. Now you have like enough to fill like 12 years, you know, it's impossible. Do you think it's possible to, to encapsulate a book in, you know, the 90, 120, 180 minutes of a feature film. I, I like seeing movies uh, become series because they can spend so much more time uh, and really break the, you know, you get a lot more meat from the book, I guess, that way. Is, are, are there any series that you're, you're pleased were series rather than a film based on a book? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The one that always pops up is, is Todd Haynes adapted Mildred Pierce into a miniseries um, for HBO. And I love, it's a great example of a way that a movie can be just as good as the book and it's subsequent miniseries. You know, it's one of those examples like like Jurassic Park where one, I don't think, loses anything by the other existing. Um, you know, and the, the book is very dark. It's very disturbing. Uh, and that could not be done in 1945. You know, you couldn't have this incestuous mother-daughter story where everybody's drinking and everybody's sleeping around and your lead character is a middle-aged woman you know finding her sexuality you couldn't do that with Joan Crawford uh and Todd Haynes I think very lovingly translated the book again and gave us a very you know dour heart-wrenching performance from Kate Winslet that has that little air of camp to it that Haynes is known for so I, I think that that series really, really gets it right. Um, the other one I throw out is I, I love, I read all of Charlene Harris's uh, Suki Stackhouse novels when True Blood was a thing. And while that series heavily diverged by the end of the, the book series, you know, the, there, there were a couple books that they adapted for, for various seasons of that series that were really fun. Uh, so I think that's a, another good example. Well, the book is called have you read the book? But that's still the only thing you've got going on. You've also got a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that and how your work as a writer, maybe um, how that informs your work as a podcaster. Some ticklish business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, and what little free time I have, uh, <laughs> where when I'm not uh, full-time you know, film editor for The Wrap, uh, I do my podcast, Ticklish Business, with my co-hosts, uh, Samantha Ellis and Emily Edwards. And we are big classic film nuts uh, who, much like, you know, this book hopefully gets people to read. We want people to love old Hollywood. Uh, so we we talk about movies uh, before 1970-ish, you know, get to interview some great people, talk about some classic films, give some weird thoughts on people that have been dead for, you know, several decades. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. We just uh, recently did our, an episode on uh, the 1930s film, The Story of Temple Drake which is a film in the 1930s about sexual assaults. And it's got a fantastic leading performance that was not nominated for an Oscar based on a book by William Faulkner. Uh, so it's it's definitely uh, been great to to talk about different books from that era when uh, adaptations were, you know, prioritized. We just recorded an episode about uh, the Oxbow incident. And one of the things I noticed is the trailer for that movie is just Henry Fonda holding the book up being like, if you've read this book, you want to see the movie. They don't show anything from the movie. It's just him holding up the book. Uh, and I love that. I love that in the 1940s, you didn't have to show any clips from the movie. 
You just had to tell people you like this thing. So come see this thing and you will be just (laughs) as happy. Man, we have covered a lot of ground. I'm literally like adding to my Goodreads account as you're mentioning (laughs) stuff. I I just ordered uh, Mildred Pierce from the library and added the HBO uh, series to my uh, um, real good account. All this nerding out over here. But uh, how do people keep up with you? Uh, I know you're on Instagram and uh, you've got the, the the podcast website. What's the best way for people to keep up with uh, your new projects and, and, and what you're up to? Yeah, you can always find my writing over at therap.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram most frequently at Kristen Lopez 88. I'm also vaguely on TikTok, but you know, I still am not down with the kids on that one. Uh, <laughs> and then Ticklish Business is on all podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, um, and we do have a uh, Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as a Facebook and Instagram at ticklish biz. And we do a really fun uh, Patreon uh, that has all sorts of bonus stuff. That's at patreon.com slash ticklish biz. Oh, that's great. You are one busy person. <laughs> yeah, big time. We're definitely kindred spirits with all of our interests here. So it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, best of luck with the book. Uh, next time you make it up Seattle direction, definitely look us up. We'll Love do. to get our, our copies signed. Yes, anytime. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Thank you. Thank you again to our guest, Kristen Lopez. But have you read the book? It is available now everywhere. Fine books are sold. And her podcast, Ticklish Business, can be heard on all major podcast platforms. You can find her writing at therap.com. And she's on Instagram and Twitter at KristenLopez88. All linked in the show notes. And if you enjoyed episode 76, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. You can find all the latest on HeilmanandHaver.com. Plus, all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver. 